Well, we're looking again today at 2 John, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to 2 John. And we're only going to look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. These teachers Jesus identifies as false, not true, but false teachers. False teachers are not sent. False teachers just go. They're self-ordained. They're self-commissioned. They step into places where churches are in great need. And before you know it, they find themselves in places of leadership, masking what they teach until that time comes when they can no longer mask it and continue to lead the flock astray. But Jesus says these are false prophets. They look like shepherds. They have the garments of a shepherd, though it says right here they come to you in sheep's clothing. It's really the garment of a shepherd. But he says here that they are ravenous wolves. And it is their fruit that gives them away to their true identity. Verse 17 calls them bad trees that bears bad fruit. That's all that can come from them, is what is bad, what is destructive, what is unnatural, what is unholy, what is a detriment or will be a detriment to believers in the church. They have always been a danger to the church. When Paul wrote to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he told them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. If that right there doesn't tell you how Paul felt about the flock being used and abused and attacked and given unhealthy, unholy doctrine, then nothing else will tell you that. But he warned them about this for three years. And he did it with tears. And the danger, and we've noted this verse on other occasions, but the danger that we find here in this verse, he says here that they come from among you. They're already there. They just haven't manifested themselves yet. John, like Paul, would warn his readers, and that's what he's doing in this letter, and that's what he did in the first letter. When he wrote 1 John, he told them in chapter 2 and verse 26 why he was writing. And he said, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. They're purposely doing this. See, we're not talking about theological error. We're talking about heresy. And those who are heretics... Do this with a purpose. Do this with a passion. They're purposing to deceive you. They're purposing to lead you astray. In fact, I was reading just yesterday that someone said if Joel Osteen ever came to the point of admitting sin and that we have sin that we deal with, because, you know, he never talks about it. He went on Larry King Live and would not even talk about sin when he was asked. But he was saying that the reason why he won't talk about it, because the very moment he does, he'll lose the majority of his church. 
Because you see, he built his church not on the word of God, but on the opinions and pleasures of men. Just like Rick Warren, last Sunday was his last service as senior pastor. And I don't even know why I'm mentioning him, but he, he did the same thing. Though he will talk about certain things, but at this last year's Southern Baptist Convention, he was there because their church was being studied because they had ordained three women to be pastors. And the Southern Baptist Convention was trying to decide if they are going to kick them out or not. And I'll just tell you, with where the Southern Baptist Convention has gone was based upon what that committee said as a result of this. They wanted to take a year to study what the term pastor meant. Al Mohler stood up at that meeting and said, you know, we've been a confessional denomination for all these years, and we have the Baptist faith and message that specifically spells out who a pastor is, that he is a man, what he does, and things like that. And if said, if we have to spend all this time For a whole year trying to figure this out, when we already know what a pastor is, then God help us. But that's where we've come. Just in two years, how our culture has completely changed from what we used to know it as. Look at it now. And that has not stayed in the world, that has come in the church. And the church is anything but holy. It has adopted so much that the world does that you can't tell it apart from the world. The group that John says was trying to deceive them, they did not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. And John said they're not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist himself, but it's the spirit in which he would operate. He says there in verse 7 that they are deceivers. They are deceivers. So as we come now to verse 7, we're moving from verses 4 through 6, which gave us the charge to love one another, to be faithful and obedient to that command to love. We come now to verse 7. And in verse 7, he gives us his concern. And the interesting thing is when he begins verse 7, and you know I'm a very stickler for words. I think words have meanings, and every word that God has chosen for your Bible is specifically there for a reason, and it has a meaning. And sometimes we have to go beyond our own native language, English, and we have to look back at the original languages, and that's why you hear me mention them so much or mention something about what a verb is doing or or what a noun is doing or something like that because these things are helpful in helping us to see what is taking place in the verse. But as John begins verse 7, it begins with that particle or conjunction for, F-O-R. That is a causal particle. What do I mean by that? Well, he's telling us in verse 7 that this is based upon what he's already said in verse 6 about being obedient to the command to love one another. In fact, the term is subordinate to the term walk that you find at the end of verse 6. And it gives us the reason why the reader should walk in the commandment to love one another. Here is the whole reason why you need to love one another. Because there are many deceivers. And besides, deceivers don't love. That is, they don't love you. They don't love me. They love themselves. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, that whole section is dealing with false teachers. And one of the things Peter says and warns the people about is that false teachers have a heart trained in covetous practices. That's why you hear them talk about 
money all the time. They talk about, like this one recent preacher, is all upset at his church because they wouldn't buy him a watch. I mean, seriously. He's all upset because they would not buy this specific watch that he wanted. Go out and buy it yourself. I mean, get another job if you have to. I mean, this is ridiculous. But this is the kind of stuff that goes on and it goes on in the name of Christ. So you could take the word, it's in verse 7, translated for, and you could translate it because. Because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Again, it's a purpose word. And so John wanted the chosen lady and her children to walk according to his commandments by loving one another because of these deceivers. And so when he says that they were to love one another, this love was actually limited then. You know, last week I talked about we love our enemies and we love believers and we really don't have an opportunity to not love. But when we're talking about those who come contrary to Scripture, they are deceivers and false teachers and so forth, the only love that you can show them is to confront them. Just as I said last week, when you confront someone who's in sin, that's showing love to somebody that you're not willing to leave them in that state and condition that they're in, but you're willing to confront them. Now, I'm no different than you. I'm very uncomfortable with things like that, but I will do it. I will do it. And I've gotten myself in uh, a lot of trouble over the years because I will do it, believing that if God wants me to do that, and, and I know He does, because Matthew 18 applies to me just as much as it does to you, and if I see somebody in sin, I'm not going to them as their pastor. I'm going to them as a fellow believer. And that, again, is showing love. And we have to do this in protecting the flock. This is really a call for discernment. It's calling for discernment to the people that you show hospitality to. Because if you remember, I told you that the, the background of this letter as well as all three of the epistles, as you had itinerant preachers traveling through the area and there were no hotels for them to be put up in. So they would stay in the homes of the members. Churches do that still today. I remember I was visiting a church up in Alabama. I went to a conference and uh, the church family put me up in someone's home. I'd never experienced that before, but it was... Uh, really incredible experience to have an opportunity to be a recipient to the love of this family that reached out to me. And especially during the time when I was there because my, my wife's mother was on her deathbed and she actually died right after I got there. I had to turn around and go back another seven, eight hour drive to go back. Satan comes, and you need to remember this, as an angel of light. He comes disguising himself as a true minister of the Word. And so each church has to be on guard. Leaders have to be on guard. And this church and these people here they had the church in their house, had to do the same thing. They needed to be on guard against those itinerant preachers who were teaching heresy. So they needed then to be united in truth and united in love so that they will not follow the false teachers who were denying the humanity of Christ. Well, go to verse 7 and let's take this apart. It begins with their number. He says, for many deceivers. Many. The word many means a large but indefinite number. In fact, when you chase this word around, you'll find it used about 375 times in the New Testament. And some of those times it's translated like as great as into the quantity or the magnitude of a group. Or it's used like in Matthew 8.15... Translated large, speaking of large crowds. Jesus even used the word in Matthew 24, 11, when he was referring to false prophets. He said, many 
false prophets will arise and will mislead many. I mean, that's overwhelming. I mean, I could deal with one or two because, you know, one is destructive enough. But to deal with many of them? But that's exactly what we have. And a lot of times we may not see it, see it going on in a lot of the churches because we're here, but we do see it going on in the airwaves. We see it on TV. TBN is a, a host to so many of them as they propagate their word-faith heresy. That's why it's very dangerous uh, when you turn TBN on, because you might be watching something like The Way of the Master with Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort, which is an evangelistic ministry teaching you how to evangelize, and it's a solid, solid ministry. But also on that same station are the Benny Hens and the T.D. Jakes and the all these other people, the Joel Osteens, the Joyce Myers, all of these people. Good thing that they're consolidated into one place, but unfortunately, that's only on TV. Scripture teaches that there are many demons. Many. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, when Satan fell from his state of being a cherubim, when he sinned against the Lord, Isaiah 14, he wanted to be like the Most High. It says when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. A third of the angels defected also. And we don't know how many angels that there are, but we know that there are an innumerable amount of angels. There's thousands upon thousands Millions upon millions of angels. So that would mean then a third of them would give us many, many, many demons. Many, many fallen angels. There are, according to Matthew 26, 60, many false witnesses. And then Matthew 8, 16, there are many who were demon-possessed. So there are many of these. And so this term is indicating a widespread movement. It's indicating a present and real danger because of the number of these deceivers. But he doesn't just tell us that there are many of them. He tells us actually who they are. Notice their identity in the next word. They're deceivers. He doesn't hide them. He exposes them. And deceivers don't want to be exposed. But you know, he did that also in 3 John. And when he did it in 3 John, he gave us a name, Diotrephes, who says in verse 9, he did not accept what we say. Diotrephes loved the preeminence. He loved the recognition. He loved to be known by name. He loved to be prominent among the people. He controlled that church. And when John is writing to Gaius, he warns him about Diotrephes. But you know what? When you see that go on and the naming of a name, it gives us something that we need to do. You know what that is? We need to name names. Let me give you an example of this. And just to show you I'm not making this up. Over in Galatians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there, Galatians 2, in verse 11 and following, notice what Paul does right here. When Cephas, Cephas was Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. But he wasn't alone. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter had played the hypocrite, and he needed to be confronted. And because this occurred in such an infant stage of the church, it had to be done publicly. Over in Philippians chapter 2, we hear two names there, where Paul urged Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These two ladies were dividing the church. Over in 1 Timothy 1.3, he told Timothy, As I urged you upon my departure in Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Now obviously, Timothy knew who these certain men were. And even in Titus, Titus 1, verse 12, here Paul is quoting one of their own prophets and said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. So, beloved, what I'm trying to show you right here is that Paul named names. And so did John. But they weren't the only ones. You go all the way back to the book of Acts and go into chapter 5. And some of you, when I say chapter 5, you immediately know about Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and a wife. At that time, the people in the church were selling their houses and they were selling and making great sacrifices for the church. And they were bringing the proceeds and giving them to the church to meet the needs of the people. This was not communism. This was communism. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they had a piece of land. And they sold it. But they misrepresented what they did. And they gave the appearance that they gave all the proceeds to the church. But the reality was they held back some of it. Now... Holding back wouldn't have been an issue if it wasn't for the fact that they gave the impression they gave it all. So you find, you find in Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, and verses 8 and 9, Peter confronts Ananias first, and after confronting him, he falls down dead. And then a few hours later, he confronts his wife Sapphira. She didn't know what had happened. She didn't know her, her husband had died. And she confronts him as well, and in both, or her as well, and in both those situations, he says that you were lying to the Holy Spirit. And she dropped dead. In fact, the, uh, the verse that kind of highlights that chapter is that no one would join them after that. This brought great fear to the community. But this was the early form for the church to experience church discipline, and God did it. God took two members out by death. Now, these two were believers. Where'd they go? Did they go to hell because they lied to the Holy Spirit? If they were believers, they went to heaven. All of our sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven, has been paid for on the cross. There's nothing indicating that they were unbelievers. But to make an example for the church and to establish a pattern for the church, God removed them. I believe we should name names today. I really do. And I'm, I don't have this penchant to... to you know, get on a bandwagon all of a sudden and start throwing a bunch of names out there to you. But, but at times I have threw some names out there in the past 
depending on something being taught and saying, well, this particular person believes this. Anytime I talk about the Trinity, I have to mention T.D. Jakes because T.D. Jakes is a modalist. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He believes that God does not exist in three persons. God just takes on three different forms. One minute he's the Father, next minute he's the Son, next minute he's the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. And that was a second century, third century heresy that was condemned by the church. And T.D. Jakes rejects the Trinity. John MacArthur says this, You can't be a non-Trinitarian and believe in a God who is not a Trinity, such as T.D. Jakes and people like that, and be a Christian. You're not a Christian if you deny the Trinity. T.D. Jakes is a false prophet. I wouldn't even call him a prophet. He's a false teacher. And there are a lot of false teachers, as I said earlier. If you ever follow Justin Peters' apologetics ministry, he follows these false teachers and exposes them. Uh, We showed a series by him a couple years ago called Clouds Without Water. It was a DVD series that we showed during Sunday school. And he basically took on the word faith movement in exposing... um, their lies and their heresy. Well, on his website, it tells us that his ministry focuses on teaching the sufficiency of God's Word and exposing the false teachings of the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel. And he does do that. And as I said, you know, watching the conference, he did just that. And that's a responsibility that we have. You know, we had, when we showed that series, we had a person that was coming here at the time. It's not here right now. But uh, was supporting a ministry like that. And just happened to say something to me about that. And what I chose to do at the time was ask them, would you be willing to watch something for me? It's all said. I didn't go, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. I waited till afterward. I did that on another occasion, too, where I had a brother in the Lord. At least I thought he was a brother. He's abandoned the faith now, so I would say he's not. Not that he lost his salvation. He never had it. But anyway, back then, he was attending one of those type of churches, and I took the book Christianity in Crisis by Hank Hanegraaff, and I handed it to him, and I said, would you read this? And he took it from me and said he would. That's all I said to him. He came back to me later, and he told me that he was leaving that church based upon what he was reading in that book, because that book had documented so well by verbatim quotes and links and so forth what these people were teaching that he decided to, to leave. We use other books at times. I remember reading years ago a book called The Agony of Deceit, and it was on false teachers. And by the way, every one of the teachers that are spoken about in that book and labeled as heretics, every one of them was confronted by the author of the book. None of them would recant, so he said he's going to go public with it. And he did. That's in the preface of the book. So if we're going to be where of false prophets, as Jesus said, then we need to know who they are. And so therefore, we have to name names. And that's to protect you. Because there, it's so easy to get sucked in. Sometimes there's magazines that come out that, that are really not good to have, that follow a heretical tradition, very careful with some of the things that we put out there for you as well because we want you to to read stuff that is good and it's truthful and it's based upon the Word of God. In fact, uh, we have some new chapel ministry booklets that are out there on the table if you get a chance pick you up one on the way out. But John does this same thing. And if you'll notice there in verse 7, he says, For many deceivers 
He names them as deceivers. This is why that they are dangerous and why they needed to be watched, because they deceive. And the word deceive here, it comes from the Greek word planos, which we get the English word planet. The word literally means a wanderer. In the ancient world, the movement of the heavenly bodies was mapped and studied and stars fit into stable patterns and some stars or planets, they moved irregularly. At least that's what they thought and the ancients called them wanderers. So this developed metaphorically into those who wander from the truth. They're just like those stars or just like those planets that don't have a at least an apparent fixed pattern. So it characterizes them by their basic activity as intentionally, now get this because this is what's behind this verse, they intentionally seek to deceive and lead astray the unwary. They're so dangerous because they lead to wrong action and not only to wrong opinion. They cannot rest until they have ensnared others in their error. That's why they are called deceivers. These are those who wander from the truth of Scripture. They corrupt it. They lead others astray from it. They are imposters. Paul called such people false brethren in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Even Jews' description of them as wandering stars headed for the black darkness of eternal judgment in verse 13 is mentioned. And Scripture is full of warnings. Full of warnings against these false teachers. In the Olivet Discourse, over in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted that in the end time, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. They're so good at what they do in misleading and deceiving people that they almost, almost are able to lead believers astray. Paul called them savage wolves in Acts 20.29. He called them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.13. He called them servants of Satan who, like their wicked master, disguised themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul even told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know what the doctrines of demons is in that chapter? Forbidding to marry and also withholding yourself from eating meat. Vegetarian. I remember I was at one church, I was a pastor, and I was sitting in on a youth group meeting, and uh, the youth pastor had had someone come and share about vegetarianism. Why he chose to do that, I really don't know. Still to this day, I scratch my head on it, but I had to confront her at that meeting because of what she was advocating, trying to say that the Bible teaches that you and I are forbidden from eating meat, that we are commanded to be vegetarians. What did Adam and Eve, or what did God clothe Adam and Eve with? Animal skins. Remember that? In Genesis 3, and I'm sure the meat wasn't wasted either. These are deceitful spirits. Doctrines of demons, forbidden to marry. Most people today just live together. It's just like the homosexual community. They want the title marriage, and they want all the blessings and all the things that come along with marriage. But they don't want to recognize what God has to say about it, but they want God's sanction on it. And by the way, marriage was created by God, not by government. Government didn't create marriage. The government could care less, to be honest with you. And they would probably be 
more apt to have you just live together so you don't get all those benefits that you get on your taxes as filing jointly as married. When Paul, I'm sorry, when John wrote 1 John, when he wrote chapter 4, he gave them this admonition. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's how you can know that if this is a true teacher of God, truly has the Spirit of God, and that what he is saying is coming from the Spirit of God, or whether it's coming from, from demons or from Satan. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and is now already in the world. That very spirit of Antichrist who denies the humanity or the incarnation of Christ they're heretics. They are heretics. Well, he says also in verse 7, these deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, that phrase, gone out into the world, is indicating something to us. They weren't in the world before. Guess where they were? They were in the church. And we know that because if you go to Chapter 2 and verse 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. They used to be part of the fellowship, but they left. And verse 7 shows where they went. They went into the world. This verb is in the aorist tense, speaking here of a particular crisis in the first century church. When these false teachers suddenly broke with the saints in matter of doctrine, and they went forth teaching heresy. Linsky says, into the world means far and wide into the world. Wherever they find Christians, Utley says that they are on missionary assignments. And as I said a moment ago, as deceivers, they are purposely trying to deceive. This is not theological error. As I said, this is heresy. They were just like Demas. You remember Demas? Demas ministered with Luke, Colossians 4.14. He ministered with Cretans and Titus in 2 Timothy 4.10. He ministered with Mark and Aristarchus in Philemon 1.24. But in 2 Timothy 4.10... Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted. Has deserted me. And the word deserted there means to leave behind, to forsake, or to abandon. And that too is also used in aorist tense, indicating at a point in time he left. So these deceivers... They left the church. They went out into the world. Now, what is their specific heresy? Well, again, look at verse 7. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. That means that they deny the incarnation. The incarnation is John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh. He took on a body. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that you have prepared a body for me. He took on a body. He was born of a virgin. But they deny that. They do not acknowledge. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh. 
Now, they didn't deny the existence of Jesus. They just denied the biblical Jesus. Just like the people on TBN do, they, they, they talk about Jesus, but they don't have the biblical Jesus. They had all kinds of pagan and Jewish and quasi-Christian systems of thought. This group that taught this heresy, as I told you last time, were known as the, the Gnostics. They prided themselves on knowledge to know. And they prided themselves on having this esoteric knowledge of salvation that only was given to a select few. It's like the JWs. You know, they come along and say, you know, you've got to be part of the 144,000. What did they do when they reached that? It's only a matter of time. This group, the Gnostics, taught that matter was inherently evil and spirit was good. So therefore they could not accept the humanity of Jesus because it would have been evil. They believed in the anointing of Jesus and they said... At his baptism, when the Spirit came upon him, the anointing came upon him, but left right before he died on the cross. See, they didn't think that he could have taken on a physical body because matter was evil. In the 96th issue of the Christian History magazine, it's titled The Gnostic Hunger for Secret Knowledge. It says this, All matter the world and the body, is evil and has its source in an evil creator who fell from and betrayed the true God. This lesser, inferior divine being arose through some mysterious, tragic split with the ultimate realm, the pleroma or the fullness of the ultimate God, who is often called the father of all. He goes on to say that some forms of Gnosticism believe that this split in the deity produced an extensive array of intermediary beings such as archons and principalities and powers, and many of whom are given uh, various names that I can't even pronounce. I'm not going to try. But they inhibit the cosmos between the pleroma or the fullness and the earthly realm, and they believe that humanity is trapped in this material world human body. And they believe that the Creator misleads humans by keeping them blind to their spiritual reality, the ultimate Father of all. And in order to provide salvation, now, now get this, because this is usually what happens with cults, is they come up with their own version of redemption. And this is what they did. They actually believed that the ultimate God sent a Redeemer who navigated the journey from the fullness of the Pleroma through the intermediary beings in the earth. And they also believed in some of their texts that this Redeemer was Seth. You remember Seth? The son that replaced Abel that was murdered by Cain? Even though that some believe that, some did believe in Christ as the Redeemer, but they did not believe in His incarnation. Now, beloved, if you don't take Jesus in His incarnation, you can't be saved either. See, they believe He appeared to be human, but He wasn't. So they would put out books. There's a Gnostic book called The Second Treatise of the Great Seth, and that denies that Christ died on the cross. Another Gnostic book that actually came to recognition just a few years ago was the book of Judas. Did you hear about that? And in that book, Judas is portrayed as a hero, not as a traitor. So they believed that Christ would provide salvation by delivering secret revelations or t 
teachings to his followers. And so they believed that knowledge then was crucial. So they believed that the saved are a special spiritual group of humanity who know the folly of the material evil world and understand that in a spiritual resurrection they will be united with the Father of all. You know, sometimes when I read this stuff, I scratch my head and I go, how do people come up with this stuff? And I know how they come up with this. It's from Satan. It's demonic. Anytime you deviate from the truth, it's satanic. That's the real reason why I believe my back is bothering me this morning. I believe it's spiritual. Because the more I stand up here and talk and move around, the pain is leaving. Satan doesn't like when we expose him. Because again, he's an angel of light. And his ministers are angels of light. Well, they're not angels, but they come along as true prophets or true preachers or true ministers when they're not. Well, they denied the humanity of Christ. They denied that He came in the flesh. They couldn't conceive of the fact that Jesus was both truly God and perfect man, fully God, fully man. They couldn't believe in the fact that you had 200% of something, but you do. And John says that they would not acknowledge it. Now, last week I mentioned a word, and this word is translated acknowledge, but it's the Greek word homologeo, which means to confess. They would not confess that Jesus came in the flesh. And if you remember, I told you last time, the word homologeo, it means to say the same thing. So, when you are confessing that Jesus came in the flesh, then you're agreeing with what God said in the Bible. Beloved, if you deviate from the truth, then it indicates a really present danger here. When you claim salvation, when the reality is that you never had it. That's that's dangerous. Again, we're not talking about theological error. I'll say some things about that in just a moment. We're, we're talking about heresy. I remember some years ago when I was pastoring this one church and one of the members there had a brother who was being witnessed to by Jehovah's Witnesses at work. Actually, one particular Jehovah's Witness. And, and uh, he decided that he was going to go attend their meetings. Well, you know what happens from there. This is why you don't go to those things. And when he agreed to meet with me, it was like trying to unscramble an egg. And one of the things that they attack is the Trinity. And no matter how much I showed him from Scripture the Trinity, even though the word Trinity is not used, the concept is taught over and over. And he would find himself kind of leaning in that direction, but, and he would even bring his books and they would go in my trash can. But I found out that that wasn't a sacrifice because the books were freely available, and when he went back, he just got them again. But every time I met with him, I told him that you are not, you are not a true follower of Jesus. You are not a Christian. I could not allow him to walk out of my office and to think in his mind because he met with me that he was a Christian. Because we were talking about the Bible. He denied the Trinity. He denied the deity of Christ. And a host of other things. Till finally the, the meeting stopped. It's very difficult to talk to people like that. I don't know if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness when they come to your door. Uh, in years past, I would pull an Archie Bunker and I'd just close the door. Archie Bunker never closed the door. He slammed the door. We're going to talk about this when we get to it, but if you look down to verse 10, 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil. If you sit there and welcome them in your house, you are participating in their evil. And if you're going to talk to them, you don't want to be on the defensive. You need to be on the offensive. You need to be the one talking, not the one listening. And what they do now, JWs do anyway, is they'll bring a little child with them because they, they know that you're going to feel guilty about slamming the door into the face of a little child. But I, re- I remember on another occasion, I was at a friend's house and we were outside doing some stuff and three of them walked up. And they just started pumping out their hair so they didn't know they were talking to three preachers. And we didn't even have a Bible. Because we were outside working. I remember hearing this story about a Greek professor at a seminary who was visited by Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was outside, too, on his shovel. I don't know what it is with us preachers having to have a shovel. But anyway, he was outside working with his shovel, and these Jehovah's Witnesses came up to him and started talking to him, and they started trying to quote from the Greek New Testament. He said, hey, hold on just a minute. Let me go get something. He ran back into his house, and he grabbed his Greek New Testament. And he came back out, and he handed it to him upside down. Upside down. And they said, well, ours doesn't read like yours. They had no clue what it meant. Just like in John 1.1, they created an indefinite article. There are no indefinite articles in Greek. What is happening in John 1.1, when it says in the word was God, there's an unarthrous construction that puts the article there. So it tells us that Jesus is the word. And by the way, they claim to be monotheistic. Monotheism teaches one God. Polytheism teaches more than one God. But by their interpretation of John 1.1, what are they doing? They're saying Jesus is a God. That's polytheism. They're not even consistent. But that's okay because their founder isn't consistent either. And I'm talking about Satan. But he says here that they would not confess. They would not say the same thing. They would not agree with what God said in the Word of God about Jesus. And they were not in agreement with the doctrines of the church. That's why they left. They differed from them. And they taught opposite of them. Notice something here too. Sometimes you'll find this in a text. You don't always see it. But when you see here, they do not. The word not is may, M-E in Greek. It's a negative particle. And it, it goes here with the do not acknowledge. And interesting thing about this, it's, it's in the present tense. And it basically means that they openly avoid the incarnation of Christ. Now they, because of their deception, don't always come out and say that because they don't want people to to understand who or what they are. But they will do it. John adds there at verse 7, and he says it again, this is a deceiver. And then he adds, and the Antichrist. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And it's the spirit of Antichrist. This is not that individual that's going to be that world ruler. It's the spirit by which he operates. And his operation is by Satan. That term, Antichrist, refers to a principle of evil that is incarnated in men who are hostile and opposed to God. So when John says, this is who they are, that pronoun there is stressing that this is the true identity of every individual belonging to this group. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
He is personally embodied in them. You see, beloved, how dangerous this is. It has eternal ramifications. If you do not confess and believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus, then you're deceived and you're still in your trespasses and sins and you're headed for a rude awakening. The Bible gives us a creed, an authoritative account of Christ and His atoning work on the cross. It also gives us a full understanding of who Jesus is. And I personally believe in our evangelism that we need to take the time to identify what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Who is He? But we don't take that time. We're afraid. We're afraid to talk about anything related to God. I was reading, and I don't remember where I read it at, but I've been reading some references to Revelation 2 and about leaving your first love. And this particular author said, you know, that the, the whole issue of leaving your first love was that they, they lost their passion for the lost. They certainly had orthodoxy. You see that in Revelation 2. Those who said that they were apostles and were not, they put out. But he says they left their passion for the lost. Beloved, that's the state of the church. No passion for the lost. If you refuse what the Bible says and make up your own assertions about Jesus, then you're in grave danger of hell. Well, a while ago I said that there's a difference between theological error and heresy. Let me just define the two. Heresy is a denial or a departure from a doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. For example, the deity of Christ, that is essential. The Trinity is essential. The virgin birth, the resurrection, those are essential teachings. You cannot deny them and be a Christian. Now, heresy, as I said, that, that's a departure from that. And to embrace heresy is to depart from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But when we're talking about theological heresy, or theological, not theological heresy, but theological error, we're talking about disagreements in theology. For example, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul were best friends. But they disagreed on paedo-baptism, that's baptizing babies, and they differed on eschatology. John MacArthur believed in or believes in a pre-tribulational, premillennial understanding of end times, and R.C. Sproul believed in an amillennial. That's no millennium. I'll tell you right now, he has changed his view. Know what I mean by that? These issues of eschatology and baptism are important issues. But we can agree to disagree. Unless you adopt a view that baptism saves you. You say baptism saves you, now you're into heresy. We're not into theological error, we're into heresy. But that's not what we're seeing here in 2 John with the Gnostics. We're seeing heresy. We're seeing heresy. And beloved, if we don't get the gospel right, identifying what the Bible teaches about the identity of Jesus, then it's heresy and you can't be saved. I mean, in Romans 10, 9, when it says this, that if you confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord. What's it telling you right there to do? It's telling you to confess, same word, homilageo, say the same thing, and you're saying the same thing the Bible says about Jesus, that He is Lord, so it's giving us His identity. He is Lord. 
And then you've got to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So these are essential doctrines right here, his deity and his resurrection. And he says, when you believe this, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You have to believe what God says in order to be saved. You can't pick and choose what to believe. What happens when you do that? You end up becoming a cult. Charles Taze Russell, who began the Jehovah's Witness, he couldn't fathom the doctrine of hell, so he cut it out of his Bible. That's why they don't believe in the doctrine of hell. Because their founder didn't. But I'll tell you, beloved, God has chosen for us what to believe, and it is very narrow. It's not like some people say all, relig- all religions end up on that one road leading you to heaven. It's not true at all. The Bible says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction. You know, many find that way, the narrow gate. Few find that way. Jesus even said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's extremely narrow. And when I think of narrow, I think of like downtown. You go downtown, some of those buildings downtown have those doors that just revolve and you can carry a few things with you. When we go over to uh, Nemours with Samuel, they have a real big one. You can put a wheelchair in there, but the door's moving. You got to just keep moving. And for those who can't get through it, what do they have next to it? They have a regular door. See, on a, a carousel door, you can't carry everything. But you can through the wide door. We've never tried to use that spinning door for him. I'd be afraid we'd get stuck in there. God made it very narrow. Very narrow. It's just like the Lord's Supper. There is rank heresy taught about the Lord's Supper. That the bread and the juice become the literal body and blood of Jesus. I just want to tell you right now, this is grape juice. This is not the blood of Jesus. The little wafer for bread, that's just a cracker. Might be leaven or unleavened. But it's just a cracker. And Jesus nowhere said that this was him. He said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. You're remembering what he did for you on the cross. And as I said, beloved, it's very narrow. We get our understanding of God from the Bible We get our understanding of Christ and the Holy Spirit from the Bible. Because the Bible is the authority. This is the authority right here. I'm not the authority. You're not the authority. God is the authority. And His Word is the authority. Everything that's true about God is true about His Word. Everything true about His Word is true about God. And so, beloved, just as I said, you take Him at His Word, and you take like Romans 10, 9, if you're here today and you've never confessed Christ as your Lord, then you do what He says right here. And He says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe that? Sure you believe that, or you wouldn't be here. Or you would have never done that, right? See, for me, you know, raised in church, I didn't really have an understanding of a lot of things about Christianity. Kind of following my own flesh and doing my own thing, reality was I wasn't saved. But then when that brother shared the gospel with me, he told me who Jesus, 
I don't want to say was, is, excuse <laughs> the present, he told me who Jesus is, told me about what he has done, and told me what my response was to be to that. And I trusted God at his word and took him at his word, and God totally transformed my life, just like he transformed your life. Now, that would have never happened if he would have told me something that wasn't true in the Bible. Because, you know, there are no powerful, there's no power in error. There's no power in heretical words. In terms of transformation, in terms of salvation. Yeah, those heretical words uh, give us a, a realization and an understanding of where you're at and who you're following and who you're influenced by, and the fact that you're not saved. So, beloved, let me just encourage you, as I said, if you're here this morning, and you haven't embraced Christ, embrace Him now. Call upon His name. Confess your sin to Him. And as we come into this opportunity to lead into the Lord's Supper, do what Paul says. Examine yourself. See whether you be in the faith. And coming to the conclusion that you are, examine yourself for sin that you haven't dealt with in your life. And repent and turn from it. And thank the Lord Jesus for His forgiveness. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege for us to study it and look at it. We pray for insight, wisdom, understanding. We pray that you would help us in these days, these dark days that we're in, to be faithful to the word, faithful to speak it, faithful to proclaim it, and faithful to live it in our lives. We pray all this 